keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 5. We will be continuing going through the book of Luke. And the title for the sermon this morning is, Whom Does Jesus Call? Whom Does Jesus Call? Our text will be that passage that was just read, Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Now, so far in Luke chapter 5, we have seen several examples of Jesus' miracle-working power. We've seen a miracle in nature with that supernatural catch of fish back in verse 6. We've seen miracles of healing when the leper was cleansed in verse 13, and when the man with palsy was healed in verse 25. And now, from our text this morning, we see a miracle of grace. A miracle of grace. Again, the title of the sermon this morning is, Whom Does Jesus Call? And Jesus gives us an answer with his words in verse 32 of this text. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Before we begin, let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity this morning to gather and to open up your word and to read it and study it together. Lord, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, you would convict each one of us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin that there is wrong, of righteousness that there is right, and of judgment that one day we'll have to stand before you and give an account for the life that you gave to us. Lord, help us to have soft and open hearts to the working of the Holy Spirit this morning. May each one of us leave this place changed and go forth to honor and to glorify you in our day-to-day lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first in this passage, we see Jesus called. Jesus called. Verse 27 begins with these words. And after these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. After these things, Jesus went forth. He went forth out of Capernaum. And Luke doesn't tell us the name of the city. But from Mark's account, we know that he had been in Capernaum. Now, if you recall, Capernaum was a very significant city in that area. It was along an ancient road that traveled uh, between Egypt and Syria. And we know it was a wealthy settlement because it had a very impressive first century synagogue. And some of those ruins can still be seen today. It's also believed to have been a garrison town, an administrative center, and especially important for our text this morning, It was a customs station. It was a stop along this important trade route where taxes and tolls were collected. And who collected these taxes and tolls? Publicans. Publicans. Now verse 27 goes on and says, He went forth, Jesus, and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. So Jesus left Capernaum proper, and as he goes out, he sees a publican. Now, publicans were the tax collectors for the Romans. The Romans collected their taxes by selling contracts to wealthy Roman citizens. And these contracts obligated those Romans to pay a certain amount of money into the treasury, the public funds of Rome, and hence the name publicans. And with these contracts came the authority of Rome to collect taxes in certain regions of the empire. Now, these wealthy Roman citizens, they would then hire locals to do the actual work of collecting the taxes. This was a system that was very prone to corruption and abuse. 
And throughout the Roman world, the local tax collectors, the publicans, they were hated because they were often corrupt and greedy and extorted their fellow countrymen. And nothing could be done to them because they had the authority of Rome behind them. Now, Jewish publicans were especially hated by their fellow Jews. Not only did they face the general disdain because they collected taxes and were often corrupt, but it was a common opinion among the Jews at that time that it was unlawful, that is, against the law of God, in their opinion, to pay taxes to the Romans. The Jews paid their taxes because they feared the Romans, but they didn't think it was right. And so they viewed tax collectors not only as people who were corrupt and greedy, but also people who were irreligious, who despised the law of God. Jewish publicans were also seen as traitors, having sided with the occupiers, the Romans, instead of their own people, the Jews. And because of all these factors, publicans, they were treated like outcasts from Jewish society. Respectable Jews, religious Jews, God-fearing Jews, they would have nothing to do with publicans. We're told the name of the publican that Jesus saw on this occasion. We're told it was Levi. Now, Levi is a Hebrew name. This disciple is also called Matthew throughout the Gospels, and Matthew is a Greek name. Mark and Luke both refer to him as Levi at the time of his calling, but use the name Matthew when naming him among the disciples. In Matthew's Gospel, he refers to himself always as Matthew. It was not uncommon at the time for Jews to use two names, especially if they often had interactions with the Gentiles. It's also possible that when Levi was called by Jesus, he took up a new name to further demonstrate his break from his old life. Now we're told what Levi was doing when Jesus saw him. He was sitting at the receipt of custom. This was likely a booth or a stall set up where Levi and his fellow publicans could sit and collect Taxes on trade that was either coming off the Sea of Galilee or down this major road which came through the city. In tax booths like this, they were symbols of oppression to the Jews. But to the Romans, or those who were aligned with the Roman interests, such as the publicans, these booths represented their power and their authority. At the end of verse 27, we see the call of Jesus. Jesus said to him, to Levi specifically, follow me. Follow me. Jesus looked and he saw a man with a hated and despised profession, a publican. And he was sitting in this hated and despised place, the receipt of custom. And when other Jews saw that, they hated and despised the man. It was likely that Jesus would have been cheered by the crowds that followed him at this time in his ministry. If he had called Levi evil, he had called him out and condemned him for the work that he was doing collecting taxes for the Romans. That would have been a popular message. But Jesus saw Levi the publican and said, Follow me. Follow me. In the call of Levi, we have an example of the amazing grace of God. 1 Corinthians 1.28 tells us, Things which are despised hath God chosen. And Levi was despised. He had all the comforts of this world which money can buy, but that had come at the cost of everything else. But this one who was despised, Jesus called. What an example Levi is of unmerited grace. God's call doesn't depend on our goodness or our righteousness. It rests totally upon the unmerited love of God toward us. 
And the call of Levi also demonstrates the effectual call of Christ. When Jesus called Levi, something changed for Levi. The choices that Levi would have had to make to become a publican could be compared to selling your soul. That's at least how the Jews viewed it. Levi had chosen power and protection and wealth over God's people, and by extension, over God. That's how Levi would have been perceived by other Jews. But when Jesus called Levi, something changed. It was an effectual call for Levi. The things of this world, which before had so powerfully drawn Levi, they could hold him no longer. No power upon earth, not even the power of corruption in the hearts of sinful men, can stand before the power of God. And when God calls a man to himself, it's an effectual call. And what's more, God doesn't force himself against man's will, but in his grace gives sinful men a will to obey him. Levi, he didn't leave his tax booth here kicking and screaming, cursing Jesus for taking him away from this life of wealth and comfort, but he followed Jesus willingly, even eagerly, and he never went back. He never went back. He was a changed man. When Jesus called Levi to follow him, he gave him the will to obey. Now look at his obedience there in verse 28. We're told he left all, rose up, and followed him. First, he left all. This is a reference to his work as a publican, his business, his profession. His identity was seemingly inseparably tied with his profession. He was Levi the publican. Though so closely tied with his identity as a person, he left it all. He left it all. Being a publican was dearly bought, especially for Jews. It was a position that you'd buy your way into, silver and gold. But it also came with a high social and even spiritual cost because of the stigma that went along with being a Jewish tax collector. They were seen as the the hated hand of the oppressors, a Jewish tax collector. Though Levi's position was dearly bought, he left it all. We're told of others who forsook all to follow Christ. Earlier in this chapter, in Luke 5, verse 11, we're told that Peter, James, and John forsook all to follow Christ. They pulled their fishing boats up on the shore, and they left them to follow Christ. But they could go back. To leave your profession as a fisherman was not a permanent choice. They were able to go back to being fishermen. And we know they were able to go back because we're told they did go back. In John chapter 21, verse 3, Peter says, I go a-fishing. Peter and several of the other disciples, they went back to fishing. Now, they didn't stay long, but they tried. They went back to fishing. Levi would not have been able to go back. He couldn't say, I'm going back to the customs table. I go a tax collecting. Peter's boat may have been waiting for him, but Levi's booth would not sit unoccupied. The Romans wanted their taxes, whether Levi was working for them or not. And when Levi left, someone else would be brought in to fill his place. When Levi left, there was no going back to the way things were before. When he left, he left all, and it was a permanent choice. And then we're told he rose up and followed him. It's interesting, we're not told that he rose up, left all, and followed Jesus, but first he left all and then rose up. Before any physical move was made, Levi had left all. 
When Jesus called Levi, the decision was made. The way of the publican was forsaken. And that spiritual reality was demonstrated by this physical action. He rose up and followed Jesus. He forsook all and followed Christ. In the first two verses of this text, we see Jesus' call. His call of Levi. And what an incredible truth we see revealed in these verses. Levi was a publican. He belonged to a group of people who were notorious for being hardened towards spiritual things. Yet at the call of Jesus, Levi forsook all. He forsook the treasures of Rome, and he followed Jesus. May we learn from Levi that there is no heart so hardened in sin that the Spirit of God can't soften it. There is no sinner so committed to the world that the grace of Jesus Christ cannot turn them to repentance. There are no obstacles that stand in the way of a sinner's conversion that God cannot overcome. In the call of Levi, we see a demonstration of the grace of God in calling sinners to repentance. Now, after Jesus called Levi, we see Jesus questioned. Jesus questioned in verses 29 and 30. In this text, we move directly from the call of Levi to a feast. This is called a great, a great feast. Uh, it was held in Levi's house. And so we learn from this that Levi was a man of some wealth. And after he was called by Jesus, he used that wealth for good. This feast was made for Jesus in his honor, for his provision. But also, a great company of publicans and others sat down with them. A great company of publicans and others sat down with them. It appears that Levi had invited his former associates to this feast to bring them into the company of Jesus. Levi had been changed through his interaction with Jesus, and he knew others, a great company of others, whose lives Jesus could change as well. And so Levi invited them to this feast with an eye to their spiritual good. This is the nature of true grace. When we are saved by the grace of God, it will be our desire to see others likewise saved. Our family, our friends, our co-workers. May we follow the example of Levi and use what means we have to bring others into contact with our Savior. Now look again and who were told attended this feast. Jesus and his disciples and a great company of publicans and sinners. Oh, excuse me, publicans and others. Now, we've already discussed publicans at length. This is a despised group of people with a reputation for being irreverent and unconcerned with spiritual things. Uh, to treat someone like a publican uh, was to treat someone like an outcast from society. But who are these others? Uh, the word used here for others is, is helpful because it specifically means more of the same sort. More of the same sort. And so these others were the same sort of people as publicans. People who were rejected by so-called respectable Jewish society. People who were outcasts. People who were despised. In verse 30, the scribes and Pharisees give us their opinion about these people. They refer to this group as a group of publicans and sinners. Sinners. Publicans and sinners. These were synonymous terms to them. Now this feast is another example of the incredible humility demonstrated by Jesus Christ. The incredible humility demonstrated by Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. We see here he ate with sinners. The perfect, holy, sinless Son of God ate with sinners. And not just so-called respectable sinners, but with the very dredges of Jewish society. 
publicans, and others like them. Jesus did not join in with their sin. Jesus did not approve of their sin. Jesus did not in any way compromise his mission or his message to associate with sinners, but he ministered among them. For this cause he was sent, to call sinners to repentance. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, they murmured against this association. Notice that we are not told that they murmured to Jesus directly. Rather, they murmured against or toward his disciples. In verse 30 of our text, we're told, But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? It sounds like the scribes and Pharisees were trying to drive a a wedge of doubt into the minds of Jesus' disciples. As if they asked the disciples, what are you doing? Look at what sort of association your master has led you into. Don't you see who these people are? They're publicans and sinners. Why do you eat and drink with people like this? In Matthew and Mark, we're told that the disciples got even more pointed in their questions to the disciples. Matthew 9.11 tells us that they asked the disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? You can see how they're trying to cast Jesus in a bad light before his disciples. And again, they don't bring these questions and murmurings to Jesus, but to his disciples, hoping possibly to find a weak link among them to exploit. This question also reveals what's in the hearts of these scribes and Pharisees. They're very much concerned with outward forms, the trappings, the appearance of religion. Now, sometimes we give the Pharisees a hard time. But don't forget that they were very sincere. They were very sincere. They believed in the authority of the Old Testament Scriptures. They devoted much time to religious study. They truly believed that their form of religion was what God required of them, and that it pleased God. They were wrong, but they were very committed to their faith. Much more committed than most Christians are to our faith. Our faith is a true saving faith, a faith which brings us into a living relationship with God. Shame on us for our lack of sincerity and commitment. But because the Pharisees were so sincere and committed to their form of religion, the feast in verse 29 is truly appalling to them. It truly is appalling to them. They would not talk to people like this, much less eat with them. Why? Because they saw these people as sinners. And why was that a problem? Because the scribes and Pharisees did not think of themselves as sinners. Certainly not in a class like these publicans and others like them. Publicans and others like them, they were sinners. They had problems. They were defiled. They were unrighteous. They don't care about spiritual things. Don't associate with people like that. Be like us, the Pharisees. We have ourselves pulled together. We have a high regard for the Lord and the law. God is certainly pleased with us. We are righteous. They would pray, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that publican. Be like us. Now, what was the difference between the people who were at Levi's feast and the scribes and Pharisees who were murmuring about it? Well, the main difference is that the publicans and others like them knew they were sinners. The scribes and Pharisees thought they were righteous. 
The publicans were sinners and knew it. The Pharisees were sinners, but were self-righteous. Now, I want to be clear. I, I just made a sweeping statement there about these publicans. I said that they all knew they were sinners. And I believe that's true. I believe that's true, in fact, of all people. Our conscience reveals that to us. Now, we can soothe our conscience to this conviction like the Pharisees had with good works in a religious system, convincing themselves that they were indeed righteous before God. Or we can ignore and dismiss this conviction and even harden our hearts toward it like most publicans had. Just because someone knows they are a sinner doesn't mean they will do anything about it. In fact, as far as we know, Levi was the only member of this group of publicans who became a follower of Jesus. They may have known they were sinners, but they had hardened their hearts and did not do anything about their sin. Don't harden your heart in sin. Don't press on in sin. Sin only leads to suffering and destruction and death. Eternal death. Eternal separation from the love and mercy of God. It's not enough to simply acknowledge that you are a sinner. The Bible calls you to repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. Be set free from the chains of sin which bind you and serve Jesus Christ. Now what do the disciples do with the murmuring of the Pharisees? Did they answer? Did they argue? Did they question? We're not told that the disciples did anything. The first part of verse 31 tells us that Jesus answered the Pharisees. Now some commentators have suggested that the disciples did not know how they should answer, and so they brought the question to Jesus. That's quite possible, but we don't know for sure because we're not specifically told that's what happened. But this text is a great encouragement for us. There's a lesson for us here. There may be times when enemies of Christ come to you and they grumble, they murmur, they complain, they question. And Scripture does instruct us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. But you will not always have the answer to every question, every objection, every carefully formulated argument. And the good news is, you don't have to. The veracity of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, it doesn't stand or fall based on your ability to answer every question. Look at this text. Where the disciples didn't answer, or couldn't answer, or would not answer, Jesus answered. We don't rest upon our ability to answer every question, but we take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and upon His Word we stand or fall. Let God be true and every man a liar. Rest upon the Word of God. So far in this text, we've seen Jesus call Levi, who was a publican, a sinner. For this cause, Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. And then we saw Jesus questioned. Jesus and his disciples went to a feast held by Levi, where there was a great company of publicans and others like them. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw this or heard about it, they questioned Jesus. Not directly, but they questioned his disciples. They couldn't believe that Jesus would eat and drink with sinners like that. They were self-righteous, and they questioned why Jesus was associating with publicans and sinners. And verses 31 and 32, Jesus answered. Jesus answered. Look at verse 31. And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician but they that are sick. So he begins with this very simple illustration. If you believe 
that you are in good health. There's nothing obviously wrong with you. Your body feels fine. You're not sick. You're not wounded. What use do you have for a doctor? You think you are healthy. You don't need a doctor. What's a doctor going to help you with? But if you're sick, if you're not well, if there's something obviously wrong with your body, then you need a doctor. Now, the Pharisees, they were satisfied with their own righteousness. To use the illustration from verse 31, they thought they were healthy. They didn't think they needed a doctor. They saw themselves as righteous, accepted by God, and so they were not looking for a Savior from their sin. Now, these Pharisees, they could recognize sin. They understood something about sin, but they saw it in others and not in themselves. In their pride and self-righteousness, they despised others whom they deemed sinful. They despised sinners so much that they questioned why Jesus and his disciples would eat with them. Now, do you see how hard their hearts had become? Again, to use the language of the illustration in verse 31, they think they are healthy. And while they know there are sick people out there, they can't imagine anyone caring enough to to become a doctor to help them. They're sick. Leave them alone. May God help us to guard against an attitude like this. Well, after that simple illustration in verse 31, Jesus spoke very directly in verse 32. There Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now remember, this is said in reply to the question in verse 29. Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Jesus answered, I came for them. I came for them. Now, what did the Pharisees want? Why did this bother the Pharisees? What were the Pharisees after? Did they want Jesus to come eat with them? I don't think so. They didn't really like Jesus. Certainly not as he was. They wanted Jesus to be more like them. Or better yet, they wanted Jesus to be like the majority of other Jews at that time, who looked up to the Pharisees as the supreme examples of righteousness and authority on religious matters. They didn't ask this question because they were interested in the ministry of Jesus. They weren't looking for clarification. Jesus, why did you do this? Help us to understand. They weren't looking for a deeper understanding of the ministry of Jesus. This was not a genuine question. They were not actually interested in why Jesus was eating with publicans and sinners. This was given more as an accusation than a question. They weren't interested in the answer. They were interested in undermining the authority of Jesus in the minds of his disciples and the people in general. They weren't looking for a direct answer, but Jesus gave them a direct answer. Let's look closely at the answer that Jesus gave them. First, he says, I came. I came. Don't miss that. Note the nature of Christ's coming that's revealed here. Jesus said, I came. Jesus was sent by the Father, and he came of his own volition. The Father said, go, and Jesus said, I will. I will obey, and also, I will to go. It was Christ's will to do the will of his Father, and so he came. Jesus said, I came. And then Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous. Jesus mentions here a call. And that's important. He came to call. A call means to invite, to summon. The image of the good shepherd comes to mind. As a shepherd would go and call his sheep to come to him, so Jesus came down from heaven to call. 
But the question, the title of the sermon, Whom does Jesus call? Whom does Jesus call? Well, first in verse 32, Jesus tells us whom he does not call. He says, not the righteous. Not the righteous. If Jesus had come to call the righteous, there would have been no one for him to call. There is none righteous, no, not one. We've all gone out of the way of righteousness. We've all been corrupted by sin. But this is particularly pointed at the scribes and Pharisees. Were they righteous before God? No, certainly not. But they were self-righteous. And in this answer, it's as if Jesus said to them, Are you righteous? Do you believe that you are righteous on your own? Then my ministry is not for you. I came not to call the righteous. But if not the righteous, then whom? Jesus said, I came to call sinners to repentance. I came to call sinners. Not the righteous, but sinners. Remember, the Pharisees in this text, they asked, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And the answer is, what better place could there be for Jesus than among those for whom he came? Why was Jesus with sinners? Because he came to call sinners. And specifically, at the end of verse 32, we're told he came to call sinners to repentance. To repentance. Jesus did not associate with sinners for the sake of associating with sinners. He called them to a very specific action. Repentance. To turn away from their sin. He was on a mission sent from God, the Father, to save His people from their sin. He was on a mission of salvation, and He had a message of repentance. A call to repentance. He came to call sinners to repentance. And in Athens, Paul preached, God now calls all men everywhere to repent. The call of God goes out to sinners all around the world to repent, to call upon Jesus Christ for salvation. Well, in this text, we see a warning to the self-righteous. A warning to the self-righteous. God stretched, excuse me, Jesus stretches out his hand in saving grace to wretched sinners. And you may think to yourself, I don't need help like that. Maybe Jesus helps some people turn their lives around, but I don't need help like that. I'm doing okay on my own. I would warn you that one day you'll have to stand before God and give an account of your life. And your standard of righteousness is not God's standard of righteousness. God is not going to be comparing you to the holiness of other people. He will compare you to His holiness. And in that comparison, all of us are going to be found to be wretched sinners. Don't rest secure in your self-righteousness, comparing yourself to others. See yourself as a sinner and heed the call of Christ to repent. But of course, self-righteousness is not just found in those who are outside of Christ. Far too often, Christians with a smug self-righteousness, not unlike the Pharisees in our text, we look down our noses at those we deem to be sinners. Jesus Christ came to call sinners to repentance. He died for sinners. He made himself a sacrifice and a curse so he could stretch out his hand to accursed sinners. Are we better than our Lord? God forbid. May God help us to guard against an attitude of self-righteousness. And from this text, we also see incredible good news to sinners. Incredible good news to sinners. Jesus said, I came 
to call sinners to repentance. Are you here this morning and you recognize you are a sinner? You know your life does not please God? You know the Word of God? And you know that you don't measure up to God's demands? You're a sinner and you know it. Well, if that's your condition, then this text has good news for you. You're the sort of person that Jesus came to call. Jesus said, I came to call sinners, and he calls us to repentance. If you know you are a sinner, obey the call of Jesus. Repent. Turn from your sin and follow Jesus. Follow the example of Levi in this text. Forsake all and follow Christ. Leave your affection for the world. Leave the comforts and pleasures of sin. Count all of these things as waste, as nothing, as dumb, like Paul said. Throw it away. Cast them aside for Christ. He came for sinners, and he calls sinners to repentance. Obey the call of Christ and repent. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the revelation that's given here about you and your work and your ministry. Thank you, Lord, that you came to call sinners to repentance. Lord, I pray that we would all recognize that apart from your saving grace, we are all wretched sinners, without a hope, but in Christ. What incredible hope we have to go from slaves to sin to joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Lord, may we heed the call of Christ and repent, turn from our sin, and trust in Christ and Christ alone. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.